Okay, well, we're going to pick up in Genesis 9 this morning, so I'm going to ask you to turn there. Genesis chapter 9, and uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter here, Lord willing. Genesis 9, and verses 1 through 29. So, when you find it, would you stand? And we'll pray and then read God's Word. Father, again, today we uh, are looking to You, asking for Your help, Lord, as we um, have Your Word before us and as we are now about to hear it read and consider these things. Lord, we depend on You for right interpretation and for right application. So we pray, open up our minds so that we don't just hear and acknowledge what's here, but so that we receive it, understand it. And by Your grace, determine to rightly apply it in our own lives. For Your honor, we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah... And his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in His own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out, of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is in the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. 
Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I want to... Um, I'm going to run through a series of, of, of uh, points here in a moment, and, and I, because this is, these are important, and I don't want us to miss them, and then we'll kind of uh, we'll kind of come back to the main uh, point. But I, w- I want to show the continuity because, again, as we often point out, there's a there's there's just like in the whole Bible, we often talk about the the big picture, and we even went through this. Uh, uh, series in Sunday school recently, the, the, the God's big picture, right? And talking about the, the overarching narrative of the Bible. And of course you find that in the individual books too. They, they, they have a piece in that um, overall picture. And they also have their, um, their own uh, specific narrative that they're communicating. And so, for example, you, you're, when you're reading, as we just did, the, the ninth chapter of Genesis, that's part of the whole story of Genesis. So, so the author is He's already been somewhere, and he's going somewhere um, with these things. And so it's always good to try to tie those things together and understand the, the continuity of the, of the story. Um, so for today, and I'll run through that in, in a moment, but here's kind of the, the main point for today's message, which uh, I'm calling God Remembers His Covenant. And this is... Um, this is more or less part two of what we did last week, okay? The, the days of Noah. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus was relating um, his second coming, which is still in the future for us. He was relating how it was going to be, how it will be uh, when he returns to the days of Noah. Just like it was in the days of Noah. Now, let me just say, the only place that I'm aware of that that phrase appears, the days of Noah, uh, in the Old Testament record, is, uh, is right here in verse 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Um, so, so Jesus is saying, like it was in that time, the days of Noah, um, and it would seem, you, you know, of course, he has this passage um, in mind, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. He says that's the way it will be when he returns. Now, just for a, for a main point here, um, and as I said, there's, there's, there's an overarching uh, story being told here. So a lot of times when I'm thinking about the main point, <laughs> I'm thinking that's, that's pretty much what it was last week. Well, well, of, of course it is, because that's what the author is doing. So you'll, you'll see those similarities. But in a simple statement, it is this. God is faithful to those He covenants with. God is faithful to those He covenants with. Now, let me, let me lengthen that out a little bit and, and cover um, two, two aspects of God's... Um, Dealings with human beings and, and which, which reveal his character to us, his wrath and his, his mercy or his grace. And let me say it this way um, Moses sets God's grace before us by showing how he preserves the human race despite continuing sin while at the same time highlighting. God's character through His faithfulness to those whom He covenants with. Um, so here we've we've got these themes running here in, in in Genesis of judgment and grace, judgment and grace, and these are two um, aspects 
of God's dealings with human beings. Or you could say two um, characteristics of God uh, are His wrath and His grace, right? And He's dealing with human beings in wrath and in grace. And so we, we just recently went through the flood account. What is happening there? God is bringing wrath on that generation because of their sinfulness, because of their rebellion. But in the midst of that, He puts Noah and his family in the ark and delivers them uh, from His wrath. So you see God's grace manifested. Um, and by the way, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's, that's like the main, main point. God is faithful to those He covenants with. All right, now let me run through a few things here and, and try to make some uh, connections. Um, just, just verse by verse, uh, just to, uh, not every verse, but I mean, I'm giving you sections here, verse by verse. First, in, in, uh, in verse 1, 9, 1, and also verse 7, you've got blessing and mandate. And if, if you're keeping notes, I mean, you may just want to write this, but compare that with Genesis 1, 28. I mean, the language is almost verbatim. Um, God blesses them. In, in Genesis 1, it's Adam and Eve, of course. And then He gives them a mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. So here in Genesis 9, it goes to Noah, his sons, and their families. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Same language as 128. Now, as I said, there's, there's continuity there. In other words, this, this God's blessing and His mandate to fill the earth with, with His glory, that hasn't changed because of the flood. So, verse 1, and by the way, that's part of that's restated in verse 7. He says, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So, blessing and mandate in verse 1, and that compares to Genesis 1, 28. Secondly, in verse 2, uh, man's dominion. Man is to rule over all other creatures. Or he's all animals, Right? And that's comparable to Genesis 1, verse 26, and verse 28, where that is stated about Adam and Eve. Now, there, there is a distinction that I think is important. Um, and there's, So there's a little bit of adjustment in the language. Um, back in Genesis 1, 26, and remember, this is before the fall, uh, before man sinned. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our own image after our, our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, all birds, all livestock, and all creeps. Okay. Um, and then you get to chapter 9, verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. And, it's, and then from there it's pretty much the same. Every beast of the earth upon every bird of the heaven, everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. The language is similar because, again, he's, he's carrying over from Genesis 1 um, that idea of, of men's dominion. But here's the distinction. Back in Genesis 1, it seems to be um, a dominion without resistance. I mean, he just says, let them have dominion. And that's before the fall. So, uh, Adam could probably go out there and find a Siberian tiger or something like that and say, sit, you know, and the thing would probably sit and, and, and uh, you know, chase the stick or whatever. Um, where if you and I try that, it's going to be a little differently, right? It's going to play out a little differently. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the language here because in, in chapter 9, this time he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. So it's not just let them have dominion or, or I'm going to let you have dominion, but he says, I'm going to put the fear and the dread of you in every, um, in every beast, in every animal. So it is, it is rule, but it is rule by fear. And, and there is resistance. You know, we... Uh, I killed a snake a couple of weeks ago in our yard. And, and uh, you know, I've heard people say, and, I'm, I'm, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think there's probably truth to it. But uh, you hear people say all the time, they're more scared of you than you are of them. That may be true. <laughs> and it probably is true. But what do they do when they're scared? They strike, right? 
Um, and, uh, and this was a, you know, five and a half foot water moccasin. So I, I wasn't going to, uh, play games with him, you know. Um, I just, I just, uh, uh, terminated him, okay. Um, and he probably was, or, or would, if I had harassed him, he probably would have been afraid. But that, the language here suggests this tension. And God says, I'm going to put the fear of you and the dread of you in, into every beast. And, and I think that's, uh, like say, even secular um, uh, scientists and all will, will tell you, you know, well, they, they have this fear and so forth. Sometimes that's why they lash out. That's why they attack. So it's still rule, but it's rule by, by fear, and there, there has to be some kind of bringing them into subjection or some sort. Um, verse 3, God's lavish provision of food. And this compares to Genesis 1.29. And also 2.16, where back in 1.29, God gives them all the fruit of all of the trees in the garden, except one, right? But, I mean, just think about that, in turn, and that's why I use the word lavish. God's lavish provision. You can have all of the fruit of all of the trees in the garden, except one. And here, He's, he's giving them all of the, uh, the meat, and uh, it's, it would seem... Right? Just kind of getting this from the text here. It doesn't explicitly say this, but it's a deduction. But it would seem that men were not meat eaters up until this time. Maybe they were. Like I say, we don't know that for sure. But at least this is the first time we see where God explicitly says, I'm giving you the meat of of, uh, all creatures. But again, just like back in Genesis 1, it comes with a prohibition. So there, um, in 2.17, they were forbidden to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, they can have the meat, but not with blood. And that's verse 4. Verse 3 and 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And that's continually uh, restated as you move through the New Testament because that was part of um, Mosaic Law. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get back to this, Lord willing, but remember as we're, as we're reading through these things, Moses is the author here. And so he, he would have had uh, in mind his contemporary readers first. So he's giving them information uh, that is kind of like the, the roots of their experience. Now, things that they're going through in their, um, in their um, experience with God and with Moses and God giving the law and all of that, in their battles with the Canaanites and all of those things, Moses is giving them a history um, that their experience is rooted in. Okay, So... Next is accountability, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6. And this is very important, although I'm not going to... It's a little different than my aim today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But um, here's the institution of capital punishment, and it's based upon the worth of man, the worth of human beings, which is due to the fact that we are created in the image of God. So you see that in verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. God's saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for the death of men and women. For your lifeblood, I will will require a, a reckoning or hold you accountable. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then verse 6, he puts it in poetic form. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So first he gives the principle for every uh, one who sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Now that does not mean that we're given a green light for revenge. You know, somebody hurts you, you hurt them back. Or somebody kills your brother, then uh, you go take revenge and kill them. No. Um, in fact, how it's going to play out in the Bible is the civil authorities will have that power. So, capital punishment 
is, is not something that you and I carry out personally, <laughs> but it is the responsibility of civil authorities. And this is where it's instituted. And the reason behind it is the latter part of verse 6. For God made man in his own image. So in other words, an attack on a human being, the murder of a human being, is an attack on the image of God. And God takes it personally. Okay? And so, and so he demands... <clears throat> um, in fact, he promises... Um, accountability or a, rec- or, or a reckoning for the murder of human beings because we're created in His image. What he, the whole idea is there that we have worth because we're created in the image of God. You, our worth is not based on our ethnicity. It's not based on our nationality. It's not based on our geography, you know, where we were born and raised or whatever. It is based on the fact that we are created in the image of God and that is true of everybody across all of those other dividing lines. So regardless of your skin color, your ethnicity, your geographic location, your nationality, your language, whatever it is, regardless of any of those things, you are created in the image of God, and it's because of that that you have personal worth. Not even, I think I left out accomplishments. not even because of your accomplishments. It's because you're created in the image of God. So, God is making that clear here and, uh, and saying that uh, He's going to hold those accountable who murder. All right, next is covenant is established. And this is uh, verses 8 through 17. He says, um, I establish, verse 9, I establish my covenant with you. And, and you read on through there and you find out that He's establishing His covenant with Noah and their sons, uh, Noah's sons, Noah's wife, Noah's sons' wives, their descendants, and then even all living creatures. So, so this covenant, what we call uh, the Noahic covenant, this covenant is universal in scope. It applies to everybody. It applies even to animals. And, and uh, the covenant is that he promises he will never again destroy the earth by flood. And that is uh, what we call a unilateral covenant. In other words, it doesn't depend on something we do. It is just something God is declaring, this is the way it's going to be. I'm never again going to, to uh, destroy the earth, our all-living flesh, by water. Um, and by the way, you can, you can uh, compare that, or contrast that, I guess I should say, contrast that to, to, ver- to chapter 6, verse 23, 6.23 and 6.7... Uh, I'm sorry, 7, 21, and 23. And there it was universal judgment. So God, back there, God is telling Noah, in fact, He tells him in verse 18, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. That's chapter 6, verse 18. And the scope of the the destruction is universal, except for Noah and his family. Well, here, the scope of the covenant um, is is universal. It includes everybody and all of... um, even all of the animal kingdom. And then in verses 12 through 17, we're given the sign of the covenant. What is the sign of the covenant? The Noahic covenant. It's rainbow, right? Rainbow. Um, I missed, a, evidently, a really nice one the other night. A old friend of mine died this week, and I went to the uh, funeral home up in Oil City. Weather was bad. And I wasn't there very long, and I left, came home. But I saw on Facebook later where some friends had posted pictures uh, while they were at the funeral home. Um, a, a full rainbow appeared in the sky. <laughs> and, and, you know, they were just blessed by the beauty of it. And, and so they were posting pictures of it. I missed it. But that rainbow, every, even for you and I, every time you see a rainbow, that is a reminder of God's covenant with Noah and with you and I and with all living creatures, that he will never, ever again destroy the earth by flood. He will again destroy the earth, but it will be by fire next time. But never again by flood. All right. Um, verse 18. This is significant for the rest of, uh, for the, rest of the uh, history of uh, uh, 
well, for the rest of Genesis and much of the history of Israel, um, notice in verse 18, when he mentions the sons of Noah, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Interesting that that Moses, rather, as he's writing this, would mention that, isn't it? Canaan was the son of of Noah, or of Ham, rather, who's the son of Noah. Canaan is the son of Ham, Canaan, but then Canaan is the father of the Canaanites, the Canaanite tribes who Israel fought in the days of Moses. So, as I said earlier, Moses... No doubt with his contemporary readers in mind, he's giving them some history that explains their experience. I mean, here they are having these conflicts with the Canaanites. And so Moses points out, one of the sons of Noah, Ham, was the father of Canaan, who they would, of course, recognize as being the father, uh, Canaan being the father of the Canaanites. And then another interesting point in verse 19. um, Verse 19, These three, that is Shem, Ham, Japheth, the three sons of Noah, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And let me just give you the flip side of that, the negative side of that or whatever. There were no people on any part of the earth (laughs) that came from any other source than these three. And the reason I'm emphasizing that, and I think the reason the Bible emphasizes that, is because we're all related. In fact, you can go beyond Noah back to Adam and Eve. Ultimately, back to Adam and Eve, we all have the same parents in Adam and Eve. Um, there is, if you want to be technical about it, and I do, um, there is one race, the human race. The human race. Now, there, there are lots of varieties of human beings, right? But, and, and that's true even in each nuclear family. I, you know, you've know, you got a, mo- a mother, father, children. A lot of times we see amazing resemblance. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you look at uh, children and you go, "Wow, um, <laughs> where did they where did that one come from?" You know. But uh, there's there's but even in the ones where you see resemblance, there's variety, and they don't have this usually. I mean, they don't necessarily have the same color of hair, the same color of eye. At least not all of those things combined. The same. You know, we have we have three children. All three of them have different skin tone, skin color, tone, however you want to say it. Different color eyes, different heights, right? So there's, there's variety even in the nuclear family. And then, of course, when you expand that out to the whole human family, family of human beings, there, there is a, a, an amazing amount of variety. But it's still one race. We all come from the same parents. And I really do think that uh, that point is being um, suggested here. It's being made. In fact... Um, Sheila, if you don't mind, and you, you have the NIV, right? Uh, I may be, it, it may not say this like I think it does, but... Okay. Didn't have what I was looking for. That's, that's worded pretty much the, the same as mine. Um, I'm going to give you an alternate reading from the, uh, from the New English translation. I thought maybe the NIV had picked it up too. Um, wasn't planning on making this point. You can tell that, huh? But uh, let, me, let me do this real quick. It won't take but a second, I think. Okay, the, the New English translation reads this way. This is just an alternate reading of, of uh, the, the phrase that's used at the end of the verse here. For your lifeblood I will surely exact punishment. From every living creature I will exact punishment. From each person I will exact punishment. For the lifeblood of the individual since the man was his relative. I will exact punishment for the lifeblood of the individual since the man was his relative. 
And then, uh, of course, it goes on to say what we, what we just read a moment ago in verse 19. These three are the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And in Acts 17, Paul says that all um, people, all men came from one. It's the way it's worded in the Greek. <laughs> from, in fact, I think I have, uh, have it here. From one, all nations of man. That's, that's Acts 17.26. And for just to finish that out for explanation, um, the translators insert one, because you, one what? One what? Well, the King James says, from one blood. The ESV says, from one man. Um, either way, the idea is from one. All nations from one. And, and that's, that's important, I think, to understand in the Scripture. We got, we've got one set of parents, Adam and Eve. And when you get this far in the story, still, we're all coming from one of these lines, Shem, Ham, Japheth. All right. Now, um, I talked a little bit about the value of life. Um, and I've talked a little bit about the covenant. Let me, let me just say this um, as well on the covenant. As I said earlier, there, there's an overarching story, and Moses is going somewhere with this. Or, you know, we can kind of widen the lens out. God is going somewhere in this story with the whole, with the whole Bible. God is going somewhere. Now, in this Noahic covenant, God says, I will never again destroy all flesh with water. And he sets a rainbow in the clouds as a sign so that everybody can, and of course not everybody does recognize this, but, but everybody can look at the rainbow and say, okay, there's God's reminder, which God said he was going to put it there, uh, to remind himself of the covenant. Uh, by the way, not that he's apt to forget, but it's just, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's just there as a sign. And so that we will remember as well, um, and, and that's a way of a manner of speaking. In other words, God is saying, "I'm going to remember my covenant." Um, you know, later on when He talks about forgiving His people, He says that He will forget our sins. It's just a manner of speaking, saying that this is the way I'm going to deal with you. Um, there, when I forget your sins, it's a way of saying I'm not going to deal with you according to your sins. Praise God. That's by grace. Here, when, it's, when he says, I'm going to remember my covenant, and, and that is repeated several times uh, in Scripture, that idea. Here, when he says, I'm going to remember my covenant, it's a way of saying, I'm going to deal with you based on this covenant. So this one applies to all people everywhere, and even the animals. God will never again destroy us with water. That is the whole earth. And we know that there are floods and isolated in different locations, but, but not the whole world. Um, so that's a universal covenant. But what it's doing is, is, part of what it's doing is setting the stage that God is a covenant God, and He's a covenant-keeping God. He makes covenants with people, and of course, He initiates it, because we're sinners, and we don't even, apart from His grace, we don't even have an interest in Him. But God initiates these covenants, he sets the guidelines, and then He keeps them. He's the faithful one. God remembers His covenant. And this is part of, uh, of a revealing of His character. God establishes a covenant in mercy. And we, we talked about this before. Noah and his family were not essentially different than the other people. That is, they were sinners also. And yet God chose to save them by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he established his covenant with them and brought them through, safely through, the destruction. So, this is setting a stage for, for the way God will deal with his people and it's, a, it's by means of a covenant relationship. Now, as I said, this particular covenant, the Noahic covenant, it applies to everybody without any conditions. 
But there are other covenants coming along. In fact, um, the primary one is going to be the covenant that he makes with Abraham just a few chapters from now. And that one's really going to have direct implications for us. But there are other covenants coming along, like the, like the covenant with Abraham, that he makes with a particular people. Not with everybody, but with a particular people that he saves. And, and we see that um, foreshadowed with Noah and his family, right? Because the whole world is destroyed, but then you have this one family, eight people, that God covenants with in a, in a special way, in a particular way, and saves them from the destruction. God is a God of covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. He establishes the covenant. He creates the sign. Again, in this case, it was a rainbow. And then He remembers His covenant. Now, let's kind of move quickly here through these next few verses. You get down to verse 18. In fact, 18 through 29, and it's a very peculiar story, isn't it? (laughs) And again, I think as part of the big picture here, what's happening? Well, we're we're learning that all men... Here's another thing we have in common. Not only do we have the same parents, ultimately, or or not only do do we descend from one of these three lines, the sons of Noah, we have that in common. Here's something else we have in common. We're all sinners. So, a few weeks ago, the last few weeks, I should say, we talked about the sinfulness of man, of human beings, God bringing judgment on the world in the form of the flood, and kind of doing a restart, right? God creates the world, then when you get to the flood, it's like He uncreates. Once again, the earth is consumed in water, and once again, the dry land emerges from the water, and then you've got a fresh start, all of those points we just hit a moment ago. God once again gives the blessing and mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Establishes a covenant with Noah and his family and with his descendants. So it's, it's like a restart. So you'd be tempted to think, okay, here's what God did. God wiped out all the sinners. And it was a purging. But you'd be tempted to think, okay, now on the other side of the purging, there's no more problem of sin. All you have left is these eight righteous ones. And so the sin problem is over. And so immediately, we're given this little narrative of Noah getting drunk, laying in his tent uncovered, and Ham coming in and, as it says here, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, here's, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do. I'm not going to speculate on exactly what played out there because we don't know. Here's what we do know. There's some correlation here that Moses is, is hitting on between the sin of Noah and the sin of Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. You know, they were, they were set in a perfect environment and they rebelled against God. Noah is set now in, and not, it's not a perfect environment. It's still post-fall. But it, it at least has been purged. And as, as I was saying, you would think on the surface they're getting a clean start. Everything's great. And Noah's set in this advantageous environment. And he does wrong. And the way the author tells it is this. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So there's, there's something there about Noah's nakedness and the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Remember after they sinned, they became aware of their nakedness. And they were, all of a sudden, shameful. And they tried to cover themselves. Now, I think that's the the correlation that we're supposed to make. In other words, there's something 
We don't have the details, but there's something shameful going on here. And, and it may be just that we're supposed to see that once again, sin is still present. It's not gone. So you've got the sin of Noah, and he sins essentially by the fruit of the, not a tree, but the fruit of the vine, but it's similar to Adam and Eve. You know, they're sinning by partaking of the fruit of, of a particular tree. Here Noah's drinking of the fruit of the vine. And then, and then his, he's exposed, just like Adam and Eve were exposed. And then comes Ham. And Moses once again makes a point of saying, the father of Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, we don't know exactly what happened other than something negative happened. Because verse 24 says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, We do know what did not happen. And, and maybe, this is, maybe this is the whole point. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and did not cover him. It's something like, remember when Cain killed Abel and God said to Cain, or rather, Cain rather, said to God, he raised the question, am I my brother's keeper? And I think the answer to that is yes. And so here, it's something like that. Ham had an opportunity to do the honorable thing, which he chose not to do. Shem and Japheth did. So he goes out, and I don't know if he, he made fun of him or what, but like I say, what we do know is he did not cover him. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. They covered him. They did what Adam and Eve attempted to do with themselves, cover their nakedness, and what ultimately God did to them, right? He covered them. And that's what Shem and Japheth did. They took a garment and covered their father. And then Moses gives this as the reason for Canaan being cursed. Even that's a little puzzling to us. You get to verse 24 and um, it says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. And you're expecting it to say, Cursed be Ham. But he doesn't curse Ham, he curses Canaan, the son of Ham. His seed. And I think, again, the, the big point is just to say that God is serious about sinfulness and he deals with it from generation to generation as long as it is there. And remember, another correlation back in the Garden of Eden. Um, there, the, the serpent was cursed. God told him he's going to be on his belly the rest of his days. But also the seed of the serpent was cursed. And that's pictured here as well. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now remember, when Moses' contemporaries are reading this, they're understanding Canaan to be the father of the Canaanites. And these are their enemies. And so Moses is giving them some history. Here's where all of this trouble is rooted in their great, 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 however many greats, <laughs> grandfather, Ham and Canaan. And so Noah cursed Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, Shem is the father of of the Israelites. I mean, they, they, they descend from Shem. If you've heard the uh, term Semitic or anti-Semitic, that's where it comes from, this name Shem. And Shem is the, the, the father of, the, of Israel. So again, Moses is talking to his contemporaries saying, Canaan shall be a servant, of servants, or servant to his brothers. Blessed be the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. So, so it's a way of Moses saying, look, to his contemporaries, look, your enemies are God's enemies. They will ultimately be overcome. Because God is serious about bringing judgment on the wicked. And God is a God who remembers his covenant. 
Now, I know at this point, like I say, what we're seeing is a little bit of foreshadowing. So at this point, you might say, well, God has not made a covenant yet with Israel here. That's true. But at the time Moses is writing this, he has. And in fact, as I said earlier, we're only a couple of chapters away from that happening when Abraham, Abram comes on the scene and God makes a covenant with Abram and his seed. So the stage is being set. So we're getting this distinction here that we've seen over and over and over and we're going to see over and over and over. The difference in the wicked are the people who are opposed to God and then God's people. We saw it with Cain and Abel. We saw it with the the two lines or lineages of Cain and Seth. The descendants of Cain representing people who were... uh, opposed to God or living as though there was no God. And then Seth, the lineage of Seth being the righteous um, people. And we saw it with Enoch who walked with God. He was the seventh from Adam and he walked with God. And Lamech who was the seventh, but not in the lineage of Cain, in the lineage of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not in the lineage of uh, Seth, but in the lineage of Cain. And Lamech was a violent man. So you see that contrast in Enoch and Lamech. And we see that contrast in Noah and his generation. Noah was blameless and upright and he walked with God. But all the rest of the generation was perverse and violent. And now we're seeing it here with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham standing out as one cursed before God. And Shem, Shem and Japheth uh, did the right thing here, but Shem is, is being highlighted because he's, it is from him that Israel will descend. And so he is uh, highlighted as being the one whose God is the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, all that to make this point. God establishes a covenant with his people. And he's a covenant-keeping God. So he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So when you go back to Genesis 3, and he gives this promise, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, human beings, will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent serpent will strike the heel of of the seed of the woman. Serpent will strike the heel of man. Man will crush the head of the serpent. That is ultimately, that's a covenant promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ when he crushes, as it were, the head of Satan at the cross. And so all these things are, these covenant promises and these distinctions between evil and and the righteous are foreshadowing that and looking forward to that. And the salvation that God provides, ultimately, not just, not just salvation from the flood, or not just salvation, we'll see later on, not just salvation from plagues that are coming on the land of Egypt, or not just salvation from Assyrian armies or Babylonian armies, but the salvation of the soul, like we talked about in Sunday school, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, that salvation is only realized through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the ark pictured. Jesus is the ark. He's the true ark. Everybody in Him is saved. So, for Moses' contemporaries, and I'm almost done here, for Moses' contemporaries, as they're facing all these Canaanite battles, battles with the Canaanites, this is assurance for them that in the end, God will see to it that we prevail over our enemies. He's going to defeat our enemies. For us, it has this application. God is able to save to the uttermost those who come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. He's established His covenant with all 
who believe. Now, I know right now it may, be, it may seem like I'm making a big jump, but, but we'll see this unfold as we go through Genesis. He's established His covenant. And He's a covenant-keeping God. <laughs> and the fullness of the promise, the fullness of salvation, is not realized in this life. It's realized when we join Him in glory. So wherever you are now and whatever you are going through and whatever you are struggling with, know this, that your salvation in the end does not depend on you being tough. Your salvation depends on what Jesus did at Calvary. And we are saved through trusting in Christ. God is a covenant-keeping God, and He will bring His people safely through, right, to the end, home with Him in glory. Would you stand, please? Isn't it good to know that He doesn't forget I forget a lot of things. I understand forgetting. (laughs) It's good to know God doesn't forget. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. And if, uh, again, we'll have a little members meeting briefly afterwards. So, um, just a reminder for that. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word and for these precious promises. Thank you for the salvation you've provided through Jesus. Lord, enable us to go through this life holding fast to Your promises. Enable us to live through what we live through here, realizing Your presence with us and in us and Your love for us. Love which was put on display when Jesus went to the cross in our behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.